Blog Talk Radio. I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Its words will I hide in my heart that I might not sin against God. Don't you know that I believe, I believe. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune. Old school, calling in from a, just a regular phone to the switchboard. We're going to see if this works. We're going to see how, well, how the kinks will get worked out. Let's see if we have Aaron on the switchboard. Aaron, are you hey. there? Hello. All right, good deal. Yes, we got you. So, uh, wow, working so far. What have you been looking at today, Aaron? Anything in particular? Um, well, as of today and last night, I was doing some pretty hardcore studies into um, Egyptian uh, mythology and uh, connecting the people from the Bible to um, historical figures and figures in uh, portrayed in mythology. So just basically trying to figure out how who is who in those um, histories and who are they descended from in the Bible and all that. So I was doing, also touching a little bit on Chinese myth and uh, uh, and some Greek. So I don't know. Just I was kind of all over the place, but basically trying to put together what was going on all about the rebellion of the tyrant and what that what pertained to this and um, how, how it worked out. So, yeah. So pretty interesting day. And this is your normal routine of a day, right? You get up, God does something with you. <laughs> he sends you down one rabbit hole or the next. And that's basically what you do every day, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it how I've lived my whole life. You know, in between, I have to go to work, but, you know, God will always send me down a path before I have to do whatever it is for the day. Today, my day was full. I wound up well, rerouting, redoing, completely redoing a dryer duct. I also had to repair your mother's bike. Then I had to repair your mother's van. But the whole time, that's not what I was really doing. What I was really doing was the art of biblification. That's what I was doing. That's what I'm about. And this episode in of itself is an outcry from, well, one of the family's very, very, very dear friends, John Kelly Sartwell. Um, You know, he cried out to me yesterday, well, do something, do something, do something, do something. So I'm like, well, I can't. I I, I don't have the normal means that we do the show. And your mother said something to me, so I'm just like, well, we'll just call in with phones old school. And we can still open up the chat and all that stuff and just see if it works. Um, 
And all we can do is hope and pray that somebody is edified in the process. The only way you can get edified is to be biblified. It's the only way to do it. But a lot of people don't stand how people like you and I work, Aaron. I mean, literally speaking, you got up this morning and you really had no idea what you were going to consume your time with, right? Because literally, you know, today, like I said, the entire time I was working on the dryer, in the crawl space, rerouting everything, redoing everything, that's not what I was doing to pass the time, Aaron. My mind was locked on God's footstool and his throne. It was locked on that with this aspect. Of Hayden, of course, you you figured that out because I come up for air, uh, got me some coffee, of course, and uh, you were up and about sitting there on the couch, so I decided to throw it your way, and it was quite obvious to you within a matter of minutes that even though my hand was to the task of repairing the dryer vent, it was quite obvious to you. That's not where my heart and my mind was at. That's not what I was consuming my time with. My time was being consumed with. We have to come to grips with this. The Lord our God has told us two different things. You can take this to the bank. Whether you understand it or not is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. There is paradise. And the word of the Lord our God tells us that is located in the third heaven. Now, whether I like it or not, that's where my time was spent today, and that was not by my choice. I mean, everyone listening to this right now can tell you that my mind should have been at the task, even though I completed it successfully, and it took very little brain power at all. I mean, literally, as far as the amount of knowledge it took to did what I did today in the cross, very minimal. I mean, here's three-inch duct work. This is how it goes together. Very simple, very elementary how to do a, a vent for a dryer. It's very simple. But coming to grips with what comes out of God's mouth, now that takes a reckoning. And the first thing you have to do to be able to do that is just believe it, Aaron. You gotta believe it. You and I come to grips with this today because it kind of upsets you <laughs> when you told me that one of your professors you were sitting in class and somebody happened to answer ask this particular question, and the professor's answer was that, well, Abraham's bosom doesn't fit in any theology. Really? <laughs> really? Well, I was never under the impression that God just ran his mouth. Was you? I mean, was you ever under the impression? Did you ever come under the impression or or have an inkling that God would just sometimes just, just babble on and talk about things that didn't matter? What's your thoughts on that, Aaron? Mm, no. I mean, there is some level by which he... I told parables, you know, um, you know, there, there's arguments on whether they're literal stories or were they, you know, 
fictional in a sense. I don't. But that's really the argument to what really happened there. But what always struck me about this parable is that not only does the scripture not call it a parable, but Jesus names a character within it. And that's what stands out to me. Now, the now the thing that the professor pointed out was that nobody gets their resurrected bodies till after the second, uh, after the uh, second death or the judgment. And the rich man is described in this parable as having a tongue that needed to be cooled off. He described, and so this. Um, this was the thing that he pointed out. So he said that he didn't stare, stand anywhere on it and he didn't really know how to interpret it himself, but he said that that was the big problem within it. And I certainly disagree uh, because I don't see why you can't have uh, in, you know, a, a spirit tongue, a spirit eye. Look, this is a good way to look at this. With the eyes. Aaron, do you think that your spirit's going to be blind when you die? Can I hear you? Aaron, are you on? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Um, I was like, just, I mean, the issue with it is, is like, will you be able to think? I mean, you don't have a brain. Would you be able to, you know, hear or sense anything. I mean, we know that demonic entities can clearly respond to things. They can move objects somehow. I mean, they don't have a corporeal body, but somehow they're able to move things. Um, it's possible that they are they are in a different spiritual level than we are, since they're trapped between heaven and earth, as the scripture, uh, as Enoch describes. That's that's a big thing about it. You have to. I don't know what a spirit is like. What does it look like? <laughs> I mean, could well, you yeah, really? What does it I mean, look people like? always, people always, you know, imagine a ghost is looking like that person, but you're like, what makes you think a ghost? Your spirit would look like anything. And and we can start right there. What does a spirit look like? But this is where the rubber hits the road. Can a spirit see? Can a spirit hear? Let's talk about Samuel. Amen? Yeah. Let's talk about Samuel. We know that Saul did what? Saul brought him up from the dead to be the witch of Endor, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the very least, you must be forced into this position. A spirit can hear because that spirit of Samuel was summoned, correct? Yeah, so let's think about the logic okay. of that. How? Now, now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Well, you got to take the next step. That spirit could also speak, correct? Yeah, it could. Because Samuel, Samuel responded. So whether the that's spirit also is deaf or not, well, that he spoke through the witch of Endor. Well, 
the mechanism is quite irrelevant. That spirit could relay the process of speech. I mean, by whatever mechanism, it doesn't really matter. Uh, uh, Samuel was clearly not speaking through the witch of Endor when he was summoned up from his rest. He was summoned from the point of absolute zero, no motion, no movement. He was summoned so he could, at the very least, he could hear, his spirit could hear. Now, you are correct that perhaps that spirit entered the witch of Endor and she was able to speak with her mouth, but that is irrelevant. That he could clearly hear. And he was without the mechanism of hearing. He was without the outer ear, the inner ear, the whole nine yards, the eardrum. Well, think, sorry, he didn't have it. Well, well, think about this. So could, um, what if, if he had entered the Witch of Endor and some level, could he have perceived these sorts of things through her? Well, like I said, yes, he could have, but at the very least, he could hear without her. And if he could hear, it is reasonable that if he had one of the senses, he had all the five senses. Yeah, so, so the argument that the, that the that professor said was not that he could feel anything, but the fact that he described having a tongue answer to that was he obviously had an ear. Samuel obviously had an ear. Whether it was irrefrial or not, he had an ear that could hear. So that being the case, it is reasonable to assume that the rich man had a tongue by which he was obviously speaking to Father Abraham. Therefore, that tongue obviously was erythrial. It was a spirit tongue. He had a spirit body. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying what's reasonable to the text. And even so, but, and, and though I'm not, I'm not like directly challenging you or anything. I'm pointing out that uh, just because he could hear it does not necessarily mean he had an organ by which to hear. I mean, we don't even know what a spirit is like. Or what it's like to be a spirit. Right. Um, I, I want right. to just don't. this: if, if it is another dimension, are they in that dimension something physical? <laughs> so that is to say, you have a body for each dimension that you might be in. Is that what you're trying to say? Uh, you you might, might perhaps, perhaps. You are in. Uh, if it is another dimension, then um, in the spiritual realm you have a body, but it's it's a different kind than the one we have in this realm. It appears well, to us in this realm that they are. Uh, to us in this realm, it appears that they have no body, but that's because they're not here. With that so, being stated, I, abso- I absolutely agree with that, that that body might be erythral on this plane, but whatever rung there on Jacob's ladder, that does have a physical body on that yeah. dimension of the ladder. 
That would make so, some sense. And the difference between that and the resurrection is that they have not a new body, but the same body. Which makes everything pretty interesting, don't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just a nice little brain you know, game trying to understand these things, but can you really know what it's like to be a spirit with the experience? Enoch describes that demons experience the certain sense of, senses of need, hunger, thirst. Right. Um, right. Could that be like? Right. Could that be like a literal thing, or are they like? Is it like a spiritual thirst or hunger? Well, I've mentioned before that, that I think it's that that it appears that okay. So it's impossible for a human spirit to exist in this realm because they are in another dimension. But demons are trapped between ours and the spirit world. That's why they're able to move objects, possess people, and the like. Okay, well, you know, what's also interesting with this is uh, when you go to that particular parable, uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 23, it uses the word in Greek there, 1869. Epiro, it, it means to raise up. He looked up, Aaron. He looked up. He had to look up the direction of up Abraham and Lazarus. So, so the issue is, is that Jesus talked to the Pharisees about this like they all knew about this. They all knew the cosmology of the spirit world. They all knew about this Abraham's bosom, even though the scripture doesn't really come out and tell you what it is. I have suggested to you that that um, it, it's mentioned in Genesis chapter 16. Sarah says that she gave Hagar into his bosom or into his arms. Right. Basically, uh, so, however you want to interpret what that means, it appears that that's what's being meant. That's right, because uh, Hagar being external from the promise was delivered to Abraham's bosom. She, by a voluntary action, the woman invited her into Abraham's bosom, into the promise. So, yeah, and, and that's, that's that really lines up with a lot of theology. So, um, we, when we are adopted to the family of God, who is our father? Abraham, there is no doubt. No, our father is God. But why is he called our uh, father Abraham? Because he is the one to whom was given the covenant, the promise. It is right. Through, he is the... God shows him to be the vessel through which he would bring his son into the world. He also used the Israelites alone for his for preaching the gospel. Because Jesus said many times, many occasions, that he did not come to the the Gentiles. He came to the um the children of Israel, the lost children of Israel. So he could teach them to go out and preach to the other nations. So, when we 
uh, Romans describes this, that when we become children of God, we are adopted into the branch. So the true branch is, is the wording of it. He is, um, so basically Christians are Israelites, correct? That is correct. That so, being the case. Um, so Go ahead. you've mentioned before that Israel means those whom God has uh, made upright or straight. Straightened. That is correct. So Israel doesn't necessarily only mean to those people. It means those whom are in God's family. Um, scripture calls right. Israel his son, calls Israel uh, God's son because they were adopted into his family. Those whom God had straightened and put back into his family. I actually described this again to my sisters today about how angels are technically our brothers in the family of God. And I said the difference between us and them in their status in the family is that they were created in it. But we, as humans, have fallen from it and God adopted us back into that family. And when you look at this prophetically, I mean, without looking at this, well, I don't even need to to speak to that. When we look that the promise was made to Sarah, correct? Correct. That the promise would be guaranteed through her, but she willingly, of her own volition, sent in someone that was external to the promise into Abraham's bosom, correct? Yeah. I like how in the so, in, in the text there, it's pretty ironic because she blames Abraham for doing for her action of doing that. So, yeah, she sure does because, well, I don't want to go too far up that tree. It is suffice to say that Abraham is the guarantor. Of the promise. If you are in God's family, you are a son of Abraham. Yeah, we, we, he is the symbol of the promise. You so it has been Aaron generally that, believed. It has been generally believed that paradise is Abraham's bosom. But um, you have pointed out a, a very important thing that. Um, he describes, Christ describes that um, this person in Hades is able to look up and see Abraham. So this, that means that Abraham's bosom is in Hades. And you can find uh, proof to this in that uh, David and Jacob clearly said that they were going to go down to Hades. And um, we were reading earlier today um, from Josephus, a work from Josephus called a discourse on uh, Hades, and he describes that the just and the unjust are in Hades. They're just in different compartments, different places. 
Right. So and that that is located on a terrestrial plane. Go ahead. That's right. He plainly states it's on the terrestrial plane. It's under your feet. This, this is, is why you can technically call Satan the king of this world. You can technically call him the king of the abyss or whatever, like Revelation chapter uh, 9 says about Abaddon, whom I think is one of the Satans, and represents Satan in the New Testament. I think that that this you can technically call him the prince of hell as well or Hades because that's in his realm it's in this terrestrial plane however heaven I don't even know what heaven's like it's something made of higher elements generally speaking what we're trying to say is this that the shadow of Hades in the heavenlies is paradise. That's what we're saying. That's what that's what we mean that in the beginning there was no Jacob's ladder between the two dimensions. There was heaven and earth was one. The fall caused it to fracture. So everything in heaven can be directly represented in creation. E God's throne room you would liken that to the galactic core. That would be God's highest place on this plane. The highest place is the galactic core itself. And Hades, this 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 place of the dead, is here. It is below us. So Abraham's bosom there in Hades, its shadow in the heavenlies, would be paradise. Now, What will blow you away, the first one who knew that, let's talk about this. Let's talk about that thief on the cross. He knew exactly what Josephus was writing about. They all knew that the entrance to the underworld was on this planet. It was a cave that would go below the surface of the earth. It was here. Hades was here. It was below us. That being the case, you can imagine He was completely blown away when Christ the King looked over and told him, Verily I say, you will be with me today in paradise. Literally, yeah, and many people don't understand what don't understand what paradise is. Paradise is the Greek word taken actually from a Persian word, which means the garden. This is what the Septuagint used to translate the Garden of Eden. So Jesus, when he was telling the thief that he was going to go to paradise with them, he was telling him, you're going to the Garden of Eden today. And this is talking about the heavenly shadow, as we, as he mentioned before, that both used to be one realm. There's an Eden on earth and there's an Eden in heaven because they were one, one place. So this being the case, Everybody needs to understand, especially this professor of yours, needs to understand that, no, it don't fit your theology. That's for sure. But when you expand upon the text itself, God will blow you away with what he's actually trying to tell you. 
And what he was telling the thief was this, that he was going to go evacuate Abraham's bosom and take the righteous to the third heaven where paradise is located. He was going to take them off the footstool and transplant them onto the throne. Yeah, we, we, the scripture says, Jesus describes to his, uh, no, not Jesus, this was uh, in the book of Acts, he, he's preaching to crowds and he says that, uh, no, he was preaching to the Greeks, I believe he was in Athens or something around that area, and he tells them that God overlooked their ignorance before Jesus came. So people who were in the uh, in the bosom of Abraham, uh, they might not have necessarily been people who worshipped uh, the name of Yahweh. They may have been like Chinese who were uh, worshipping Shang-Bi, um, maybe Zoroastrians who worshipped uh, Ahura Mazda or something like uh, under those lines. They may have... Uh, there were certain ignorances that God allowed, but he says that now that Christ came and died, God calls all of us, all of all people to worship that one God under that and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. So that being said, then, um, uh, it was a very different place. I, I, I've heard this before, the, the suggestion that uh, Jesus, when he rose up from the dead, that was when people were allowed to go into paradise. Perhaps there is consistency to that, in that Jesus, uh, people could not become children of God and uh, without Jesus. And if you were not a child of God, you could not be in paradise. Well, interesting interesting train of thought we're going down. You know, Aaron, this is key critical to the end times. You've got to know what is to come, son. You have got to come to grips. If you don't know what is to come, oh my goodness, you're going to be so confused. Your foundation is not going to be solid. It's not going to be plain. It's not going to be square. That is to say, it's not going to be level. We are to have a firm foundation, correct? Correct. The only way to do that, son, is to step outside of the bounds of this English language. It's the only way to do it. I don't care what translation you got in your hand. That translation, don't cut it. Don't cut it. I, I don't care if you're using the most ancient translation or the most modern translation. English itself is faulty compared to the Hebrew and the Greek. And the reason, the big reason, uh, one of the big reasons that uh, English doesn't cut it to the original languages is because it takes more English words to describe just one Hebrew word. Uh, if you were talking about this and trying to uh, come up with uh, uh, a better name for what we were originally calling uh, Primus Resurrected and uh, Primus Athendemos, like could we 
uh, what would what would be better? And I said something that was simpler, and that was, and it, when it came down to it, we had to go with the Hebrew because those are the simplest terms. But it takes more than one term to describe that. I mean, for instance, the the, the word for Mosheim uh, it, it means those from Jesus, literally those from the salvation. Therefore, the translation. Uh, Saviors is not correct. So you can't really describe that with one word. If you're using English, well, uh, you might have to write a whole sentence about one word. Or better put, a whole chapter, i.e. Revelation chapter 14. Because you have to take this to the bank. Moshayim, the etymology of that word, is described by a group that is somehow ascended Mount Zion, and they're standing with Jesus. So, literally, this one word has been <laughs> has been given, you know, through uh, uh, seven verses. The opening verses of Revelation chapter 14 describes the term you just mentioned. Going back to what you stated earlier. Everybody thinks that Israel means what the Strong's number shows them, but that's incorrect because in every single time, Israel has a prefix yod. So you don't have to like it. Israel is this, and it's nothing else. It is the word yashir, or H3476. It means to write or to make straight, coupled with H430, whom God has straightened or whom God has made right. Yet when you look at the etymology, when you look at the Strong's entry for it, it gives you two different root words. And you just, you just have to come to grips with the simple fact that the Strong's is going to tell you that, no, it's H8280. That's Sarah. No, no, it's not, because Sarah does not have the prefix yod. So you have to get your hands dirty, son. You have to get your hands into the Word of God. And terms like this, these, these, these moshayim, well, what on earth, whenever you pronounce that, it, it, it sounds like the Moseses. Moshe, and then, of course, the Yod Mem, the plural aspect. But yet, when you take a look at the root words, well, how can you have, oh, for Pete's sakes, how can you have from, oh, for, let's just break this down, ladies and gentlemen. Yesha, which means to say, you have the prefix Mem, which means from or of. So of Jesus, I am, means this, this, this group. You don't have to like it. That's what it means. Look at it in Hebrew. Just open your eyes and look at it. And it just stares you right in the face. And then when you keep reading and you keep studying and you find this word again, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 27, there they are again. The verse makes it 
seem like judges. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say judges. It says Moshai. Well, that just took that entire verse and put it into the future tense. Which, of course, makes Isaiah chapter 26 make perfect sense now. But you would have had to believe Isaiah chapter 26 up front, which most people don't anyway. These types of issues, every issue we've talked about, and I know it sounds crazy, but all these issues are key critical to what is to come. And if you don't have a firm foundation, oh my goodness, ladies and gentlemen, will the fallen be able to deceive you? And that's a fact. The fallen will be able to deceive you lickety-split. Let's talk about this. This is what the verse states with the rich man. By the way, it doesn't say rich man. It says landowner. That's what it says. Yeah, um, you know, it's pretty kind of interesting is that some manuscripts call him Nineveh. Like they say that's his name, Nineveh. And why would that be relevant, Aaron? Because prophetically we are told that the people the that the people of Nineveh would well, we don't need to go in that into that. Why don't you give me your thoughts on it? What do you think of that that in some manuscripts, he's called Nineveh. What's your thoughts on that? Okay, well, this much, um, the, uh, why would I say Lazarus? Lazarus is the Greek uh, form of the name Eliezer. And it means, it means uh, God has helped. Um, and then, Nineveh, we actually don't really know the origin of that word in any language to say that it refers to um, Ninus, who was the founder of Nineveh. So, we are told that Nineveh would be destroyed, and that has indeed happened. Um, you know, I I'm literally just rambling. Well, I don't know. Well, well, look, um, Matthew chapter twelve verse forty one: the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they've repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So this is locked into Bible prophecy. It is inescapable. So it's extremely prophetic that some manuscripts would term this young landowner the most particular piece of property associated with the end-time generation, the Ninevites. So I find that incredibly intriguing. But Well, remember what he said to Abraham? He said that he would go back to earth and uh, um, to teach his brothers to repent? 
He sure he did. He said, surely. And then Abraham was like, if they didn't believe, <laughs> if they didn't believe, if they didn't believe um, any man coming up and telling him this, then uh, they're not going to believe a ghost. Well, let's do this. I've tried to approach this topic twice and haven't been able to get to it. So let me pass it off, off to you. When speaking about this landowner, it says that he looked up to see Abraham's bosom, correct? Correct. Can you describe what I described to you about whether there's just one direction or whether that direction could actually be talking about 360 degrees? Why don't you describe your thoughts about how it's possible that the landowner had to look up, as in the direction up, to see Abraham's bosom? Well, we're talking about photography, of course. Um, Enoch describes that there are four chasms or four hollow places inside the earth, and those people are divided according to those places. Um, And Abraham describes that a chasm was between them and that it was fixed for the purposes that no one could pass over. So um, there is some, you know, like geography that's going on. There is, There are different places that exist there inside the underworld. And does it refer to gravity or what? But... It's also intriguing to to think about this in way of a of a sphere. Could the landowner look every direction and see heaven? Was he at the very bottom of a sphere? That is to say, let's say you're in a basement and the first floor is glass. So the landowner is in the basement. And he looks up and sees Abraham and Lazarus, which is on the first floor. Could he look past Abraham and Lazarus and see up to the second story? And that's where heaven was up there. You could translate this into the geology of the earth. This would create, well, a very interesting premise. Was the rich – well, the, was the landowner looking up through the dirt to the surface, and was he looking through all the way up to the third heaven to Abraham's bosom? It's an intriguing thought. It, 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 it makes you – throttle your mind and start taking notes and taking notes and taking notes until eventually you come to this conclusion. No, there is a throne and there is a footstool and they've been separated due to the fall and Jacob's ladder connects the two. And Jesus really did set the captives free. 
he really did. And the only thing that makes sense is the only thing that any theology can line up with is that he transported the righteous from Abraham's bosom to third heaven where paradise is. That's what makes sense. As a matter of fact, that's the only thing that makes sense. But you just have to keep pushing the envelope. If what God is saying, if what God has written in the Bible does not line up with your theology, you need to get your hands dirty. You need to get outside of your native tongue. You need to get in the tongues that he delivered his word. That's what you need to get into. And you just need to keep studying until it makes sense. Because everything does make sense. So, Aaron, why don't you uh, give us some topics uh, for what we're going to talk about after the break? What do you think? Mm. Well, we could discuss um, various. Uh, we could actually. Uh, I suggest that we could, for sure, talk about the domino effect. You mentioned that. I mentioned that yesterday. All right. Well, that sounds certainly like places we could go. The domino effect. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if uh, you are in the chat, I'm sorry, um, I haven't been in the chat room, but the chat room is open. I see that uh, Amy and John Mark Gomez is there. Um, It's just that, uh, well, logistically speaking, things were happening. So um, I hope you're enjoying the broadcast, and we're going to take a six-minute and 20-second break with the old Profetico intro Bible reading one that I did oh my goodness years ago now we'll be right back ladies and gentlemen
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the End Time Tribune. We have, uh, well, going to join me and Aaron in the cycle. Uh, should make for some interesting conversation. Uh, ben, it's uh, good to have you in the saddle once again. Um, how have things been going your way? I'm okay. It's good to talk with you guys. Aaron, uh, you were talking before the break that you wanted to talk about the domino effect. Please shed some light on that topic. All right. So the domino effect uh, in my uh, – the things that we have discovered is the domino effect that occurs um, – that occurred in the event of the flood, and we believe will event will, – will happen in the last days. See – Astronomically, you can cause a bunch of chain of events, and we've come to realize that that must have been what happened during the flood. There wasn't just a bunch of water falling from the sky that happened during the flood. There was a bunch of other things that occurred. So this is basically the concept of a domino effect. One thing causes the next. Ben, can I get your thoughts on what you think the machination was behind the flood? I don't know if you and I have talked about it before, but what do you think actually happened geologically speaking? Well, um, fundamentally, you're talking about changing of dimensions. Um, The earth, think of it almost like a sponge full of water. And in that moment, if the dimensions change, um, all of that water is going to be pushed to the surface. I mean, when, when you read when you read the account uh, in the original languages, it's a violent pouring of water. It's not. I mean, people think that it's that the flood is caused by raining, but it's really about the uh, pores of the earth opening up and just just vents of water flying into the into the air. Um, which is a very important aspect of of what happened. But but the other thing, and it, and it ties into what you guys were saying before the break, is is that um, you know the Bible mentions over and over again that you have to get to your hind feet, and you know the mechanism that was used for it in the flood was was the ark. Uh, the ark uh, changed um, their elevation, and literally what we're talking about. Uh, from our perspective or the perspective of men, that would be most important is how do we change our elevation? And the Bible says that we have to get our hind feet. That's the way that that happens. So we could, we could and should talk about it on several different levels, but that's my initial comment. Well, backing that up, that the reversal of this process 
we are told emphatically in Ezekiel that the Temple Mount proper is going to be about a square mile. Now, that's impossible. The only way that can happen is for, well, the earth to get a whole lot bigger. Now, that would be the exact reverse of the mechanism you just described. That during the flood, the sponge of the earth was squeezed. And it would be reasonable to understand that God literally says that he's going to stretch out your your footsteps. He's going to stretch them out. They're going to be enlarged. He tells you you're going to walk in your highest places. He tells you he's going to give you your highest feet. Well, you put that together with the simple fact that there's only one way for the Temple Mount to, to get to be that size is for the entire surface of the earth to be expanded. I mean, that's, that's the only... That's the only thing he could be talking about. And me and Aaron just discussed this on Christian conspiracy theory. The simple fact that God comes out in one of the Psalms and directly directly tells you that he's going to heap up the water yet again. Uh, Aaron, why don't you speak to that a little bit? Uh, you and I did discuss this on Christian conspiracy theory, right? I, I think we did, or, or was that in private? We actually didn't talk about that on a show. We just talked about it with each other while you were writing your book. Really? So I'm letting the cat out of the bag? Or so, so you're serious. Uh, well, I guess we'll just put this uh, to Ben and talk about what he thinks. Now, I'm going to have to tell you this right now, Ben, that, uh, you need to do this. You have to believe what I'm getting ready to read to you first and foremost. If you don't believe it, I can't help you. Psalm 33, verse 7. This is what God said. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in store houses. He just told you, literally going to store up the water once again in the fountains of the deep. Now, he goes on. Let's go to verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood so, Ben, the, your, um, your thoughts. Job on... chapter 38 goes out and describes this in depth. It starts in chapter 38, verse 8. It says, Or who enclosed the sea with doors? Who, when bursting forth, it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, and no far- farther, and here shall your proud w- waves stop. Okay, so this is the description of uh, God putting the water 
down below the earth into what it does. He shut it up in doors. Those are whatever. In a sense, he shut them out up in, with doors. And another thing, a very important thing that uh, lines up with the verse that Dad just pointed out, the keeping up of water, uh, verse 9, when I made a clouded garment in thick darkness, it's swaddling down. So uh, my dad was watching a sh- a, some YouTube video um, a while back, and he was watching, it was saying, what would happen if the earth sped up? He said if the earth sped up, most of the moisture would would go towards the equator. So uh, there would be a lot. The, the water could be heaped up. Like, but most importantly, we were talking about a uh, cloud, uh, a thick, thick moisture that cloud that would 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 be around the Earth, and this is what would be a swaddling band, a swaddling band of thick darkness around the Earth. Well, yes, because literally speaking, ladies and gentlemen, you have to realize this. All you'd have to do is speed up the Earth. If you sped up the Earth, the centrifugal force would overcome gravity. Once that happened, all the water would be concentrated in the very spot where it's the hottest. It'd be, it, it would be concentrated around the equator. What that would cause would be the land around the equator to be inundated, and then you would have complete total heating all the time. This would literally create a massive cloud cover, the circumference of the globe right around the equator. They know this. They know it. But when the Lord your God says that he's going to strike one-third of the night and one-third of the day, he's literally telling you, whether you like it or not, this planet is going to speed up to 16-hour days that event, he's going to have to do other things, most notably expanding the surface of the earth, putting the floodwaters back down into the waters of the deep. If he don't do this, you're doomed. I'm just telling you. So that that Whenever, mechanism of changing those dimensions would um, would actually be have a cooling effect, so that I would imagine the acceleration of the Earth would be compensatory to counterbalance the effects of the changing of those dimensions. Well, most assuredly, assuredly, Ben. I, that's why. Well, that's why we all have to just start believing it. When you read chapters like Psalms 33, if you don't believe it, you have no hope of understanding it. So if you just pass over these chapters and think to yourself, yeah, that's, you know, that's pretty sci-fi. If you don't believe that and just carry on, you'll read all the way to Revelation when he says, by the way, I'm going to strike one-third of the night. and Yeah, I'm not really going to plague you on the strike one third of the day too letting you know there's only one way he can do that he's speeding up the spin of the earth so if you didn't believe Psalm 33 when you read it 
confused about both passages. It's not going to make any sense. But until you get until you get into geology, start studying it, and this is why I have I have no no problems telling the entire world. In my first semester in an institution of higher learning, I took geology. But my major, of course, was biblical studies. That was my major. And everybody was like, why are you? And by the way, why are you taking astronomy? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord, my God, has told me exactly what is to come. He's told me exactly what he's going to do because he's absolutely no respecter of persons. He don't care. So he just comes right out and tells you what he's going to do. And I need to understand it because he told me told me those things for a reason so I could prepare for what is to come. So if I don't understand it, you know, if I don't believe it, I can't understand it. If I can't understand it, well, I'm just stumbling around in the dark. And God just won't have that. He just won't have it. I mean, we are to be children of the light. We are to be ready in and out of season to give a proper response. We know that the Lord, he is God. And besides him, there is no other. Amen. He doesn't care who you are. Uh, If you call yourself a Christian, you better be ready to give a response. Yeah, go ahead, Ben. Amen. Well, I I like the way he says it. Um, Matthew, of course, is referring to what... uh, is written there in John 14, verse 26. Um, he comes out plain and says that this mechanism is really bringing you to remembrance of everything that he said. Learning happens when you actually are able to recall what has already been said to you. Literally what the Holy Spirit has done through the Bible is given you everything that is to come. You just don't know it because you aren't remembering it. And the mechanism that happens when you do know what is to come is you are actually transitioning to the place to where you're able to remember everything that he's already said to you. And case in point, we've just witnessed this. I read a random verse. Neither one of you knew what verse I was going to read. I just randomly read... Uh, uh, Psalms 33.7 Nobody knew I was going to read it Yet it triggered a response in my son That would storehouses Triggered a remembrancer He remembered a chapter in Job Where God had described This very thing So when we speak When we come together When we assemble Literally Literally peppered in our entire conversation should be remembrancers that trigger us to remember the scripture. Now, that can't happen if you're talking about baseball, apple pie, and Chevrolet. That can't happen. If you're going to church to talk about your dividends, well, you will be divided indeed. Amen? Amen. Amen. The, the, the Word of God is the most important thing in the universe. 
But I do have to say, apple pie is pretty amazing. <laughs> hey, man, point taken. Point taken. <laughs> apple pie is pretty good. I mean, I mean, uh-huh. we all should just take a just stop and just, just discuss how amazing it really is. <laughs> but yeah. um, but yeah, straight to the point about the um, the domino effect. So I was raised. Um, my dad always told me that it was a super wave from the galactic core that caused the Earth to tilt. And therefore, after re-studying more and more, um, it appears that everything goes in the line of dominoes. So, like, um, but this seems to be the very beginning of it. The galactic core releases a burst of fantastic amount of energy. And um, Paul LaViolette uh, talked about this. Um, he was the guy who invented the concept of the superwave. However, um, while in high school, I learned about black holes. And black holes are, for all of you who don't know, are basically pure gravity. The gravity is so intense that it, it, it pulls at an infinite level. And uh, there is no time inside of a black hole. There can't be. Because we, we have proven that time is affected by gravity. Because if you're on a mountain, you know, the, the time goes, you experience goes faster. If you're on the lower part of the Earth, it's slower. So if you were in the closest to the center of the Earth, time would be way, 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 way slower than it is where we are now. So inside a black hole, you would be infinitely pulled down and there would be no gravity experience whatsoever. This supermassive black hole, which they say uh, exists at the center of our solar system, <laughs> in the center of our galaxy, um, this black hole is so massive, they believe, that you could fit several million sun, suns inside of it. So uh, if more than one black holes were to collide, the energy released by this action would be so intense that it could send a powerful wave throughout the entire galaxy. So uh, the super wave, whatever causes it, possibly may have been these colliding black holes, whatever it was. So, um, the coming of the superwave, as my dad has always taught, it represents the coming of God the Father. He's coming for judgment. So, um, talk a bit about that, Dad. This is the elephant in the room of eschatology as far as the well, as far as the church is concerned, irregardless of people's theology. Um, the Bible emphatically says this, that God is going to have his day. He states it throughout the scripture. He always says that he's going to have his day. 
he's going to be given his due. Literally, this is how the apocalypse of Isaiah starts out. That's why the apocalypse of Isaiah is chapter 24. It goes all the way to chapter 35. The God-haters want to tear this apart and say, uh, no, it's only this part and this part and that part. It, just read it. You'll figure it out. Because if you need a hint, you ain't got a clue. It means you, you've never believed it anyway. But when you take a look at the book of Isaiah, there's no way around it that the apocalypse of Isaiah is chapters 24 through 35. He starts out with his great day. That is exactly represented in the sixth seal event. And that is represent well we spoke a little bit about uh, psalm chapter 33 yeah it's all over it but the new testament calls this the visitation the greek word is is well just please look that up so god emphatically says that this whole thing gets kicked off by his great day it's his day it's he the day of he who sitteth upon the throne, he's going to have his due. That's how it begins. That's how it starts. And so literally speaking. This, this event happened also during the time of the flood or not? Most certainly. Yes. So, um, the... This superwave, in a sense, would cause the astronomical, uh, the astral objects to tremble at his presence. That's exactly what Jesus himself said, that the powers of heaven would be shaken. Yes, so emphatically. Not just shaken, they actually fall. Amen. I mean, they're not just shaken; they they actually fall. They're pulled. Um, they're actually pulled here. So the we know for sure that the first of all these objects, well, this super wave causes a certain one of our planets in our solar system to be to loosen itself from orbit. And in scriptural sense it's a, it's a sense of arrogance, of trying to ascend the stars of God and to become like the most high. And um this planet uh is known vaguely as Planet Nine, uh, but he's also been known as Tyche, a planet whose effect and presence in our solar system can be detected um, simply through mathematics and by the way the objects in the Oort cloud and the Kuiper belt. Uh, uh, appears that an object is there and it is affecting them. So, but we can't see it. This planet cannot be seen. And uh, they suggest that it must be the color of it. 
I absolutely what agree. What you're describing, uh, Aaron, is Second um, Kings, the sixth chapter, the opening, the access. I mean, remember, they were cutting down trees, and what happened? That axe head fell in the water, and they didn't know how to find it. This, yeah. And um, we have uh, evidence of a planet like this in other, uh, several planets in other solar systems. They, um, their albedo is um, so low that they literally look pitch black. You can only see them uh, whenever they cross across the face of their parent star. Being the case, we don't have to like it, but, I mean, we, astronomically speaking, this event, and, and, and it's a little hard to describe using celestial mechanics or, uh, well, astronomical physics. But really the only thing that makes sense is is that space-time is literally distorted by his presence. Literally, he changes the gravitational constant in the solar system. When he does, it triggers a response, and we know what the end of that response is. God is quite plain in Revelation. He says that he takes the scapegoat and throws it headlong into the lake of fire. Meaning, symbolically, this planet nine is going into the sun. And this this occurred, of course, it's going to happen, but it also happened in this event during the flood. This is described in detail in uh, in Ezekiel chapter 28. It describes the stones of fire, or and describes all these stones with with this uh, with the the certain being, the one who was with the cherub in the garden of Eden. So this. This planet represents the Zazel, or the the god of the Antichrist. This is described as the beast from the sea in the book of Revelation. Um, And and he represents this because of his rebellion to become, uh, to raise himself above the stars of God. Um, So the book of Enoch describes that this, was this object was persecuting the luminaries uh, in chapter I can't say for sure but I believe it's chapter 17 it describes this object this fire let me correct myself it's chapter 23 but it describes this western fire as if it was exact exact description of it and it um, it says that it's persecuting the other luminary and it continually moves in a direction and it appears at the same time every night so this means 
that when he saw, he would always see this object in the west, right? And that is towards the setting of the sun. And this object was moving straight towards that direction. And we had talked about this. Where would that mean this object would be? That would mean that this planet was originally between our planet and the sun. So, describes the events perfectly, mathematically speaking, is the fifth planet Nice model. It describes what the Bible is talking about perfectly. It literally states that literally there was a fifth gas giant, that being this object. This object came inbound, and Jupiter did a grand tack. This grand tack brought it into Earth's orbit and literally saved us all. But what it did was take this ninth planet, kick it around the sun, and send it into deep orbit. But when it comes back, it's going to be pushed into the sun. Ben, go ahead. So we got into this. So we we were talking about why is it black like that? We, 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 we had a hardcore discussion about this several times, trying to figure out why it's colored this way that, so that we can't see it with our astronomical instruments. Every representation that we have of this object in the heavens, we have multiple ones. They were all discovered, just like Aaron described. The only way you can see them is when they transit their parent star. So the only way you can see it is by the transit method. They suppose that the reason why they have such a low refractive property is a different, a couple of different reasons. They think that it might be a gaseous titanium oxide in the atmosphere, which makes it close to the libido of, of acrylic paint. But what the Lord, our God, tells us is that the ephah has a lead cover. Fortunately, what would perfectly describe that would be lead oxide in its upper atmosphere. How could that have happened? Well, all the reflective gases on Jupiter is in the upper atmosphere. That's why it gives – that's why it's so bright in the sky. But ladies and gentlemen, you have to understand that even when we sent – I hope everybody realizes that we sent a satellite into Jupiter's atmosphere. And if I remember correctly, it only went about five miles before it was crushed because of the extreme pressure. It's huge. Jupiter is huge. It gives off more radiation than it receives. Yeah. To, we to, have... In a similar correct uh, perspective, um, you all must know the red eye on Jupiter. It, they say that you could fit an Earth in a half inside of it. Right. It's, it's, it's absolutely huge. Yes, it's, it's huge. So we also have representation that if it is possible that if this planet got close enough to the sun as Jupiter shoved it out of the way, it's quite possible that all the light gases 
was sheared off and sucked into the sun, creating a cloud around the sun for a period of time. This would have left extreme heavier gases, and that would provide the mechanism as to why you can't see it, because all of the lighter gases that we have in, in all of the remaining gas giants, all that lighter, highly refractive, reflective gas was sucked off and cast into the sun. The reason why so Enoch would that, describe it as a fire is when, when you look at a fire, it's, it has flames, right? It is um, releasing uh, tongues of fire at you as it, uh, as it blazes. If a planet would look like this if the atmosphere was being sucked off of it. That's exactly what it would look like, son. Exactly. It would exactly the reason, describe. Yeah, go ahead. The reason why, why it would, yeah, if, if a higher mass object gets close enough, it starts sucking off things. This is the, this is the reason, it's because of mass that um, the planets revolve around the sun. It's, it's because of mass that, um, so, so the higher mass always sucks the lower mass things to it. So, of course, this would be your atmosphere. So this would cause uh, massive problems. Um, if you had a planet come out of orbit, that means all of them are. Our planet, is, our solar system is perfectly balanced. And once one of those uh, is moved out of that, you're, you're talking about a mess. This, of course, caused Jupiter itself to come out of orbit as well. And um, people suggest that what caused that... Okay, so Jupiter itself moving in uh, that close would cause the asteroids from the asteroid belt to be flung out. This is the Chichilub impact. It's got to be. So, the things that are going on on the celestial level causes the Earth to be affected. Affected, of course. We're lucky it didn't destroy our planet. But, yeah, we, the, the, the asteroids they say that killed, killed the dinosaurs, the, the, um, the Chichilub impactor, this, this thing hit the pan, the Pangea, which was the one continent of the planet at the time. This object smashed into the Gulf of Mexico and shattered the continent, but when it shattered them, of course, it brought those waters up. Fortunately, those things make perfect sense when reading the biblical text and believing it and putting it it inside an astronomical context. But we have this very mechanism with WASP-12b. It's orbiting so close to its parent star that it's egg-shaped. This planet's surface is 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. 
It's literally right on top the of the reason. This, this was the big problem. The thing that caused me to think that it was the outer layer had been stripped off to cause it to look black like that. Well, is across the Oort cloud. That's only that's the furthest planet from our sun. But all of these instances of a planet like this is always it riding on close to the surface. So this this tells us that those planets must have had their outer atmosphere sucked off just like Planet 9 did. However, they fixed an orbit around their sun. Our, our um, Planet 9, something else happened. So, this we have discussed before on Christian Conspiracy Theory. That um, that Uranus and Neptune appear to have switched places, and that the planet Neptune must have been created, place planet nine or Mirage, as the as the Bible calls it. Ben, your comments. Yeah. Um... I, I think that's right, and um, you know there are there are several mechanisms that are afforded to us. Um, you know the magnetic sphere, uh, the flow of electrons around this planet. I mean the that energy, uh, in some ways, is dissipated by that uh, magnetosphere, the which which provides protection. Um, in addition to other planets that can actually shield you from the blast of something like that. Well, we are, <laughs> we've been on here an hour and a half. <laughs> uh, good conversation, boy. This is a good old-fashioned BTR live broadcast, isn't it? Um, I hope the audio turns out all right, but... Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, these things are important that you have these discussions. It's important that you read the Bible enough that when somebody is talking to you, it triggers remembrancers. You remember, well, that reminds me of the story of David, or that reminds me of this, or that reminds me of that. It should trigger remembrancers in your memory. And these things that are to come, you better come to a firm reckoning of this. What Revelation describes is not habitable. What Revelation describes is not habitable. When you talk about just the event of one-third of all the green grass and green trees being nuked, that's not survivable. That is creating, if you was to literally torch one-third of all the green things, does nobody realize what that would do to the atmosphere? It would create an atmosphere that quite simply, exactly. You you have to understand that, that the biggest... 
important role that those green things provide is that is our lungs, ladies and gentlemen. It's the green plants that takes the CO2 that we exhale and turns it back into oxygen. So if you burn it, number one, you're, you're pumping the atmosphere full of smoke, but you're also you're destroying the mechanism that would clean the air and turn it back into oxygen. What the Bible is saying, what it's describing is not, not habitable. That environment would not be habitable. And this is why the Lord your God plainly tells you in Revelation that he commands death to flee from you. You're not going to be allowed to die. So he's telling you that he, it's going to be uninhabitable. But you're going to do it anyway because he's that mad. So, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you should start thoroughly searching the scriptures for the things we've talked about tonight. I cannot impress upon you enough to do so. I just, I cannot impress upon you enough to do that. It is key critical. It's absolutely critical. You know, let's take a look at this very strange word in the Greek, G1984. I'm going to read one verse, 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation. You need to look up this Greek word, visitation. And you need to come to grips with what God's trying to tell you, what he's describing. Because God's not wasting his breath. He's describing to you something for a reason. So... Ladies and gentlemen, this, this visitation described in this verse is going to happen. It really is. And it's going to happen just as God describes it. So, with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, you might want to consider what we've talked about tonight. We've been all over the playing field. We've been all over Bible prophecy. We've been all over with what is to come. And we never mentioned really any of the most popular terms in eschatology today. We haven't even mentioned those. Now, I have the rare privilege of just being so frustrated because John Kelly Sartwell just kept bothering me. Do a broadcast, do a broadcast, do a broadcast. Why? I, I don't see I don't I don't see the point myself. So I well <laughs> we've been on the air 
for 10 years. We've been on the air 10 years. One of the fellows with which I associated with in times past, I went to go listen to one of his broadcasts today, and literally on this broadcast about Bible prophecy, about what's coming in 2020, he literally, I even clocked him, he wasted 17 minutes talking about how his dog would be tormented every night by his two cats. And finally, I just shut it off. I I finally just had to shut it off. So, we've probably taken you by surprise tonight. We haven't mentioned any of those catchphrases. Because most of those catchphrases, they're not even in the Bible. So I hope that we have at least inspired you to come to grips with, well, chapters like Psalm 33. Now you know that is to come. That's what God intends to do. And he's not playing around. He's told you up front he's going to do that. We've talked about chapters in Job. We've talked about Ezekiel, both 28 and the dimensions of the temple. We've been all over the board of Bible prophecy tonight. I hope you have been educated, but more importantly, I desired for you to be edified. And I hope we've done that tonight. Give me your thoughts, Ben, should we do this again? Was was this successful or no? Yeah, I, I love uh, hearing the shows. Anytime you guys do something, it's always out of fun. Um, it provokes me. Um, it amazes me how often what you guys are talking about matches what you know I, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, is sharing with me privately. I don't know how many times I've reached out to you privately. I haven't talked with you for six weeks and I'll mention a verse and you'll be like, we were just talking about that yesterday. And it's like, you know, how does that happen? So it's just a good, it's just good to know you're on the right bit of road sometimes. Amen to that. And let me apologize to those people that got into the chat room. It was just logistics tonight. I hope everybody appreciates Right now, me and Aaron are talking to you on our phones. This is old school. I'm not on my laptop. I'm not on, you know, the way that we used to do this, Skype. I couldn't afford it anymore, so I don't have Skype anymore. So we're literally calling into the switchboard, you know, old school. So next time I will get prepped and be able to be in the chat room, I'll have to rearrange some things, but I'll be able to be in the chat room next time. But I hope everybody in the chat room was edified. And I hope that everybody, well, praise for the end time tribune. Because tonight we didn't talk about cats and dogs in the middle of the night. Because night is coming when no good deeds can be done. That being the case, Ladies and gentlemen, if you have 
future things that you would like to talk about, let us know. If there's something you want to know about what is to come, the future timeline, get a hold of us, and we will do an in-time tribune on it. So whatever your question is, send it to us. Let us know. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, God bless. Godspeed.